Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I'm here with the co-founder of Force Management, which is technology world's greatest sales training company. My co-host, John Kaplan. Good afternoon, Cap. How, how are you? I'm doing great, buddy. How are you? I'm really good. I'm really excited about our guest. Same here, buddy. Cap, our guest today is a six-time CFO. Murray has been the CFO for Adobe, Postini, LiveOps, Dolby Labs, Atlassian, and Rubrik. He served on the board of directors for Citrix, Easy Software, Centrify, and Qualtrics. And he's currently on the board of Lacework. Cap, please help me welcome Murray Demo. Murray, thanks so much for joining us. Heard a ton about you from, uh, from John McMahon and your reputation precedes you. Well, thank you. Nice to meet you guys. Uh, you, John, and obviously John McMahon, we work together. So great to see you. Yeah. Hey, Murray, I wanted to have you on the podcast because I've met a lot of CFOs that can talk about all the metrics and measuring sales and marketing, but they're really like immune to understanding the issues that the sales force faces. And in listening to you in a lot of our meetings, you have this realistic feel for the sales force. And you always ask questions like, okay, if we're going to do that, what's going to happen? How's that going to affect the sales force? So how have you been able to get outside like the normal CFO role, you know, and gain an understanding for sales? Well, I've been fortunate enough to work in a lot of different companies. I have worked in 10 companies from, you know, aerospace and media, computer services, and software, totally different markets within software. The go-to-market model was, was really different in all of them. Uh, some were heavy enterprise sales, direct selling, and others were, there was no salespeople. Uh, or they were very marketing-driven and not really sales-driven. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you got to go and understand the business model. You got to understand the customer and how do you reach that customer. And so the only way to do it is you've got to go out and meet with your peers across the executive team uh, and actually get out on the road. And, and I did that early in my career. I found who the, I thought was the number one sales guy in the company and asked him, can I go out with you for a day? And in my early in my mid to late 20s, early 30s, I did a lot of that. And at other points in my career, like at Adobe, distribution was absolutely critical to our success in selling package software. So I went all over the world and I met with all of our top distributors with the country manager to understand sort of their point of view. And that really helped inform some of my thinking about what it means to the sales force. I'll just say that as a public company CFO, we got to make the number as much as the leader in sales does because mm -hmm. our neck is on the line with investors. So you need to be involved. They need to understand their challenges to try to help them overcome to make the number. And so that's kind of been my approach. Yeah. And a lot of times in these companies, it's the CEO that acts as the arbitrator between the CFO and sales because 
they're not really aligned. So you going out with the sales force early in your career probably helped to gain that alignment between the CFO and the sales and marketing heads. Is that right? It did. Um, I'm not saying that it always went well because there was times where, you know, you get toward the end of a quarter or some decisions, there's a trade-off because the CFO has also got to make all the other numbers on the income statement. Mm-hmm. And so there's times where there's going to be some conflict and trade-offs are going to have to be made. And that CEO in times is the ultimate, they're running the company. So if they want to, you know, take a sales number and, you know, cause some damage potentially in a subsequent quarter on expenses or whatever it might be, as long as you make an informed decision, then you have to sort of accept that. But my goal always was, is there any way that the sales leader and I can come to a conclusion and not have to go to the CEO? But that wasn't always the case. That's when I've seen it, you know, work best because a lot of times you lay out the annual plan and then throughout the year, sales sees that, you know, the market's changed, competition's changed, a new competitors entered the market and then you need to you know plan for some or change something in the plan and you have to be able to have that discussion with the cfo where they don't just say no but where they are willing to say tell you if that's what you want here's the trade-offs correct and i think it's establishing sort of a relationship in advance of it so when it does come you've kind of already agreed on how you're going to go about it. And uh, what I have found, though, is the best sales leaders are actually business leaders. They made a transition from carrying the bag and trying to make their number and tunnel vision and closing business, which you have to do to start your career. But as you progress up, the ones that are the most successful, they turn into business leaders and they're trying to solve a problem more at a company level then it's just for a specific sales-oriented activity. And those are the ones that ultimately become CEOs. They have great careers. They make a lot more money than they did if they stay in that sort of tunnel vision sales orientation. And it makes it a lot easier for everyone else in the organization to work with them, support them and their teams. Yeah, otherwise yeah. fighting everybody, right? Because they think it's Correct. all just them and their teams and, my, and they have a myopic view of what's really happening at the company level. Correct. And CFOs have that same trap. Is that, <laughs> you can be the, you know, the no person to everybody. Yes. And you do not help the company achieve what it can. So you kind of have some of the same challenges. You've got to find common ground with all the different leaders in the organization, understand enough about their businesses, their concerns, their needs to try to help them. Again, I failed miserably many times at this, but I tried hard to, to do the best I could to be a partner across the entire organization. So, yeah, Johnny so you don't I, have a... Johnny and I once worked for a CFO that said no so many times. We used to call him Ebenezer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was going to say, Murray, you don't have a plaque on your desk anytime in your career that said Dr. No? <laughs> uh, I've had uh, as bad as Grim Reaper. There you go. Hey, <laughs> let me ask a question because you touched on it really quickly and I really liked it. I, that was going to be one of my questions for you. Can you go a little deeper on the profile for an ideal CRO? And you've had such great experience with 10 different companies. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the other high business acumen? They're able to understand company goals and initiatives. Could you give us a little bit more? And 
if I asked you, has it changed now in these times? Or are there any updates for these times? What would be your comments? Well, I think the ones that are most successful, again, as I said, they became business leaders, not just sales leaders. Um, the same can be said for a CFO. Did you become a business leader or are you that sort of finance say no person? So um, what what I've seen, though, is the ones that they, they want to understand more about the product and the technology, they're engaged in the strategic planning process because strategic planning process is really just a process to identify priorities to fund. So you want to sit at the table if you're a leader, including sales, to how how do my priorities or the company priorities get funded? And does does my team know that I utilize my seat at the table as well as I could to try to better the sales organization? And so it's again that business leaders really involved in strategy, tries to understand in finance what the issues are, try to understand what is Wall Street looking for. Um engaged in things like the press, et cetera, not just in, you know, customers and partners, but really kind of becoming that business executive. And what happens is, is that if you show an interest in someone else's organization and it's genuine, they'll want to do the same in your organization. Yeah. And you start to build this bond and partnership. And when you know where that person's coming from, when they really need some help, and maybe you got to take a deal you don't want to take, you'll do it for them because you know that they're trying to do the best they can to solve the company's goals, not just the sales goals. And I think that applies to really anybody in, in business, but that's what I've really seen. When things get tough, and so because I've you know, had a 40-year you know, career now, I've been through a lot of recessions. The reality is, is when the recession hits, customers just don't have as much money to buy things. And so you're going to have to pull back in marketing and you're going to have to pull back on sales. And so does that person fight it? Or do they look for ways to say, hey, look, we could actually invest more here. We'll cut back there to optimize in the current environment. Again, the person that was involved in strategy that was closer to the business, they're the ones that will help get the company to the right outcome as opposed to be seen as sort of the complainer. They didn't get what they wanted. And actually, they hurt the company because we need their voice and we don't actually optimize the best we can in the environment. Great advice. Yeah, it goes back to being a business partner instead of just the CRO and understanding that you are running a business and there are trade-offs in any business and things change. They, they change from one quarter. Sometimes in some of the growth companies I've been, I used to say to the CFO and the CEO, it feels like we're a different company 90 days later. There's different yeah. issues, there's different things that we need to be concerned about. Totally. So Murray... When you look at sales performance, if we could just change gears yeah. a little bit, what are some of the key metrics that you as a CFO looked for in sales performance? Well, I'm probably, you know, even though my career started in financial planning and analysis, and I'm all about the data and analyzing it for what it is, yeah. um, I wouldn't say I'm the most experienced sales um, CFO for direct enterprise sales organization and every metric because of sort of this varied career that I've had. Um, there's tons of people in the organization that generate lots of metrics and things like that. Um, the first thing though that I do look at is I just want to see on the sales leaders and that can be, you know, a district, regional, geographic level. 
Do you have a command for the business? Like, do you know where you're at? I, I don't want to have the salesperson that has 89 great days in a quarter and just one bad one. It just happens to be the 90th. We all get surprised and we go back into 89 great days in a row again. Yeah. Uh, I want someone that really is close to forecast. If it's not going well, they call it early. We try to figure out for some things we do, can do to support or adjust, but they just have a command. And if they do, that means they're inspecting the business. They're looking at the deals every week. They're not just sort of taking what they hear. They're sort of challenging and digging in at the you know, various levels within their organization to get to the truth. That means that they're committed to trying to figure out how to improve it as opposed to just sort of acting surprised at the end of the quarter. So that's the first thing I'll always look at. I'd say the metric that I'll also look at is just, do you have enough pipe? Because usually when you miss a quarter, and you hear all about this deal slipped and that deal. And if we would have closed this, we would have made it. It's really the problem was there wasn't enough pipe at the beginning of the quarter and everything had to go perfect. And maybe it does for a quarter, but the next quarter it's going to fail because you just didn't have enough pipe. So I will look at pipe a lot and just seeing how it's moving through the funnel to try to get an understanding. I'll spend my time kind of in that area. Uh, the other area I'll look at is discounting. Uh, the discounting, sure, you know, it's going to affect revenue and profitability, but if there's a lot of discounting, then probably there's not been enough sales training. The, the salespeople don't understand the product as well. They're not addressing the right use cases. And so they're just going in and basically going in with price to try to close. And so I'll tend to kind of look at that as a, as a, there's something going on there. Somebody needs help in their team. Yeah, and a lot of times that goes right back to not having enough pipeline. So they hang on to these deals yep. and in order to close, they either don't close at the end on the 90th day, like you said, yeah. or they close, but on a really heavy discount because it never yes. really was a deal. It wasn't properly. Right. And if you're trying to like force 90 or the hundred to 80 days of selling into, you know, a much smaller time frame. So you, cause you didn't do a good job selling and right. you didn't do a good job selling because you didn't have enough pipe pipeline. And then going back to your earlier point, John and I always talk about command and control, like you said, con control and command over the business. And the best forecasters are usually the best qualifiers. They're constantly qualifying deals, constantly qualifying their salespeople. Like why, how come, what's, what happens next? All those types of questions. So that you can early in the quarter, wipe those deals off the, off the, when there's like 10 weeks to go, wipe them off the forecast. And maybe you have a chance to get some real deals into the pipeline so you can close them 90 days later. Yep, so we've seen that. So, hey, Johnny, I got a quick question um, before we transition. Sure. Murray, budgeting this year has been very, very difficult for most companies. As a matter of fact, many companies that I talked, they're just getting their budgets done uh, in February. And I'm anxious to hear from you, how do you balance um, lean budget? I don't, that's not the right way to put it, but fiscal responsibility with agility. Somebody explained it to me. It's like building a boat going out to sea. You got to build it so it can withstand waves. But if the waves aren't as big as you thought they were going to be, you've got to be agile enough to move your way around the ocean really fast. And I don't know if that analogy works for you, but companies are really, really struggling with that now. 
Yeah, it's, uh, you know, when you're up and to the right for a long period of time, it's, it gets real easy. And then when you have headwinds, then you kind of find out, you know, really how good you are and do you have a command of the business? And, um, you know, I sort of two answers to that. You know, one is agreeing as a management team, what are we going to do when the headwinds, when we face them? What are we going to prioritize? Leave the numbers aside for a moment. Just talk about what is it that we can't stop doing or even accelerate? And what is it that we have to basically put on hold? And agreeing on that in from more of a strategic point of view. So I'll give you an example. I remember at Adobe when the recession hit 01, 02, and it got tough. And Adobe has a challenge where the first things that companies will cut when they face a headwinds, they cut marketing spend. Variable marketing spend, which is core to Adobe, this is now back 20 years ago. And when the economy picks up, the first thing you'll do is spend variable marketing before you hire people because you can yeah. always pull back on us. So Adobe usually comes out of it early. What we agreed during that time as a management team is, is that we were going to innovate faster and that we were going to focus on segmenting Acrobat and coming out with a creative suite, which is sort of like the Microsoft office for the creative professional. And we were going to commit dollars to it and energy and really focus as a management team on that and hope that our competition would cut R&D and cut the things that are related to innovation so we could even gap them further. But other areas like sales, marketing, and GNA, we're going to have to put a lot of things on hold or cut. And when we came out of the recession in 03, Creative Suite just hit it perfectly instead of Acrobat and the company just took off. And the next couple of years, it was really easy to be the CFO. You just kind of went around and you just did victory laps, you know, with investors. And so that, I think it really comes down to, can the management team do that? Then the other answer to this is, if you haven't been doing what I call planning and control on a consistent basis, and you have a vehicle to adjust quickly, then you're kind of trying to do it seriously for the first time and you're just gonna suffer. And your employees are really gonna see yeah. it because they're gonna see either peanut butter spreading of, of funding on things, but nothing gets enough money or cutting the wrong thing or what's hot today is cold in two weeks. And the employees are like, why do I wanna to commit to anything? They're just gonna change it again in four weeks. So you really need to have a planning and control framework in place so that when it comes, you just kind of adjust with that as a tool and you keep on moving. And unfortunately, most companies struggle with that. And one of the bigger challenges usually is the CEO allows the, what I call sort of the backdoor plea. Yeah. Where they fund someone's little private project that the management team agreed wasn't a priority and everybody else finds out the back door's working and everybody runs over there and goes in that door and the CEO undermines the whole process of prioritization that they just had a meeting on the week before. And the employees see all this because they fishtail the most, you know, from the head of the management team. So anyways, there's a few thoughts on that. How about how far down? in an organization, in your experience, in the sales organization, from a budgeting perspective, how far do you think it should go? Like, where should the burden of budgeting really lie? Because I've seen different people, you know, just get people a number 
have people participate in their own rescue on the number? What, what has been your experience? What are pros and cons? Because sometimes people that aren't ready for it, they get burdened with it. Everybody says they want a PL and then they get a PL and they get paralyzed. Well, I'd say I'm probably a little more in the prescriptive camp. I think the executive team has to basically make the hard calls and set the priorities, um, you know, through conversation, but basically say, you know, here is, uh, here is the, uh, here's the priorities, here's your funding and kind of here's your head count. And because a lot of people down the organization, they're not set up to really do that. They don't have the perspective across the organization to optimize effectively. And so, um, I think the executive team has to drive a lot of that in partnership with maybe the next, the next layer down. But that's where it can get a little political also, right? Because each, once the CEO says, we got to tighten the budgets, then all of a sudden everybody knows the game that's about to be played. So they kept sticking up for all the projects and they have all the reasons why we can't cut this project, right. that project, and because everybody else is going to suffer if we cut it. But again, that goes back to maybe your original comments on, you really need business partners around the table that can really look at the big picture and the effect that it's going to have on the entire company performance, right? Totally agree with that. You know, it's, I also think the compensation programs have an impact on that. You know, I think some organizations, the sales leadership actually go up, they're still sort of on this cash quota, they get paid out on deals and they don't have actually enough stock. And I think of being thoughtful about how that transitions to just making a total number, don't get paid on deals, you get paid more on stock, they'll put the business leader hat on. So I think mm -hmm. there has to be some thoughtfulness about how you transition from, you know, here's your quota, here's what you can do on accelerators, it's all cash, to start mixing in more stock as you go. And as you move up, and I think that will help incent the sales organization to become business leaders to optimize around company performance and not just, you know, generating, you know, their cash. Right. Johnny was talking about that this morning, that sometimes you can have, you know, the executives put together new strategies, but the, it's misaligned with the way in which people are paid. So then the employees just check their compensation plan and. You know, yeah. from first to second line sales leader, it says, when my people sell more, I get paid more. So you can forget to them. They're saying you can forget about your corporate strategy. I know what I'm going to do. And right. so there's misalignment, right? There's, they don't, they don't adapt quickly enough for the company. Completely agree. Yeah. Hey, Murray, when you were a CFO, I'm just curious. Did you ever have any external salespeople, especially early in the early stages of the sales process, contact you just to understand, you know, company initiatives, critical projects, ask for coaching on key personnel to contact or see if that's something that the company was looking at investing in in the future? I never allowed it. You never allowed it. What do you mean? Well, so let's say, you know, CIO always reported to me. I would never take a CFO job unless IT reported to me. Okay. And so any software purchase, I felt that if I got too involved too early, I undermined the CIO. And instead of it being sort of their decision and their commitment to the success of implementing that software, 
because I got too involved in it. I, I got, I let them off the hook. And so they could, we could talk about it to the CIO and I and explain things, but I never let a salesperson ever get close to me. Yeah. Now, with that said, there was a sales guy at SAP. They got close to me and the CIO said, you got to meet this guy. And it really wasn't so much about the deal because it was kind of set, but you got to meet this guy. And so I met with him and, you know, he was a colorful personality and I liked him, but he'd listened to our earnings calls and he'd read analyst reports and he knew enough about our product and our organization that I said, wow, he He's making an effort to understand our business. Mm. And, he, and, and I could tell that he actually put time into it. And he wasn't 100% right on some things, but I was really impressed. And he became a personal friend after that. Mm. And, um, that uh, and so then it got, I remember there was a quarter where our CIO was, you know, working him too hard at the very end and playing hard to get in order to sign a deal. And the sales guy contacted me and I would became an advocate for him to get that damn CIO <laughs> to agree to the thing so that he, so the sales guy could make his quarter at SAP. Yeah. Uh, it's a great so, story. But yeah, the person differentiated themselves because they totally. knew so much about you and your business. Correct. And that person obviously went on and ended up running sales organizations at companies. Uh, you could see it coming and it really wasn't that much effort. And he was totally a sales guy. I mean, if you met him, you know, he's in sales. But that, that didn't bother me at all. I, I like the fact that he genuinely put the effort out to understand our business. Uh, and, I, and I thought that was, sounds like everybody should do that, but it was unique. Yeah. But if somebody called you up and knew about, you know, critical projects that might've been in your 10K or in your annual report and just said, hey, could you just tell, I don't need to know anything else, but I just would like to understand who is in charge of running that corporate initiative. Would you, would you coach him or no? I wouldn't even talk to him. You wouldn't talk to him. Yeah. Wouldn't talk to him. And maybe I'm different that way, but, um, I want to, I want the leaders that report to me to own that, but I'll meet with them at some point. Um, but it's when that CIO or the head of real estate or something like that, they've already kind of got their deal that I've worked with them on. And we're kind of at a point, might as well meet with the people. Okay. Now when you, you would meet with them and let's say it's a major purchase, would the really good salespeople come prepared with what I typically would call a CFO ready business case, you know, really good cost justification on a business case where it understands, you know, the project, it understands the issues it understands product fit, those types of things. Have you ha had people come prepared? No. Well, I never, I never allowed that meeting. It was yeah. more deeper. Is that again, because of the reporting structure? Yeah. I, 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 you know, it's, you need to convince the person working for me that this is how they want to spend their finite dollars and why it's going to help our company. They've got to be convinced. Okay. Before I'm never going to overrule them. They, they got to own that, but I'm talking to them, you know, this, the CIO and I are talking it all the way through. So I'm familiar with the whole thing. So in okay. effect, it still got to them, yeah. right? Just being through really the, the decision maker wasn't so much me. Yes, I approved it, but the decision maker was the person reporting to me and they were empowered by the stuff that came from the salesperson that maybe shared some of that with me. 
Ah. They, so they had to be prepared. It just, it just went that way. I'll right. tell so you there this. were meetings where the CIO, I'm just a question where the CIO and an external salesperson no. did, no, you left it down. Again, you pushed it back down. Yes. Okay, got it. You're pretty, That's how I did it. That. Yes. <laughs> and so we get to now buying something. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to make the decision, but it's not necessarily done. Then I might meet the person. I might go out for dinner or they come by the office. And you know, the crazy thing is, and I think we all know this, I like buying stuff from people I like. Yeah, sure. You know, I mean, it's, it's, if I met the person, they came off, you know, real sort of slippery feeling then it, it would really bother me. But if I felt it was someone like, Hey, I like this person. They're a business partner. They take an interest in our business. Kind of like this guy at SAP. It then, then it was like, okay, I really want to do a deal with these guys. And I kind of keep an eye out for them. Like, is there more business we can do with them? If it makes sense, you know, within our constraints of our financial model and what our st strategy is around, you know, our enterprise systems and things like that. So that's kind of, kind of how, how I managed it. Uh, and I felt that it worked pretty darn well. Yeah. I mean, you managed it in your way and it worked really well. Yeah. I, but the backbone of my question was, you know, were a lot of the external salespeople fully prepared, like you said, that where they understood the business, they came with a cost justification and a, and a real, real business case. And again, yeah. you, you pushed it down, but that's, that, that was the back. So, so let's go ahead, Murray, go ahead. Man, I'll, I'll just say, just on that, remember what that salesperson that were affected with the, when they were effective, the CIO was selling me. Yeah. yeah. Right. With their, with a lot of their information in addition yes. to their own. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes. So that's where I was going. Advocate yeah. for the salesperson. Yes. So then I saw commitment by that CIO reporting to me that this is a good deal. We can implement this thing and we can improve our company. And here's kind of why, and all of the, all of that, they became the salesperson to me. Let's play that out a little bit. So what you're really saying is the expectations of cost justification, those all have to be in place. Your, your expectations is that the, uh, the person who's being sold to, like in this example, the CIO, um, they would utilize all that information and then bring to you for discussion. What? do you expect? So let's play that out. I'm a seller listening to this saying, okay, I heard this loud and clear. I have to, I can't sell to a CFO. Um, I'm going to sell to the CIO and then I'm going to collaborate with the CIO to help them sell to the CFO. In this example, we're using sometimes those people don't get it. Sometimes the internal people don't get it and they go, Murray and I were great, known him a long time. He's a good dude. Um, I can get things approved. I got it in my budget or what have you, which might be true, but what advice would you give the seller to prepare the heads of business units that are ultimately going to the CFO? So long story short, sorry, what are your minimum expectations that you'd have to see for some type of purchase that would come to your level? Well, obviously cost is one element, but I, what I really want to understand is, is more strategically why, you know, acquiring this piece of software, if you will, 
how does that fit into our strategy as a company that we're, so let's say that we were trying to change something around um, how we're going to engage with channel partners yeah. or what we're going to do around pricing and packaging. You know, these kind of use cases, like are, we, we know that we have to do it. Why is this solution going to be the best one for us? Which other ones did you look at? How committed are they to our success? What's the schedule here? Did you get buy-in across the organization, right? Because most of these things are, these are business processes that you're trying to automate across the organization. So it's not like a, a departmental purchase. It's a company-wide initiative that cuts across other organizations. So are those other organizations committed in terms of their focus and attention and resources to make sure this cross-functional process that we're going to to automate through software is going to be successful, then we'll get around to the price. Because ultimately, if you paid 10% more or 10% less, that will not dictate the success. It's did, did you improve this business process in the company that made us more competitive, that allowed us to better serve the customer, et cetera. And if, we, and, and if you do that, then it's like, it doesn't really matter what you paid for the software. Okay. And so I'll spend more time around that than it's going to be, you know, did we get the, you know, squeeze the last dollar out or not? Because yeah. if it's coming down, the only reason why we're buying it is because it's cheap. You know, you might as well just give up now because that's not why you're buying it. Johnny, I don't know if you heard, but buried in Murray's explanation is basically the three whys. I just, I just wrote it down. You did? <laughs> Yeah. Well, we tell salespeople a lot of times to qualify if you, if they get up and let's say a forecast call, Murray. We tell we basically there's three really easy questions you could ask. Say, why does a company have to buy? Have to. Why do they have to buy from us, right? Versus the competition, and why do they have to have it now? Why can't they wait? Why can't they use something else? Why can't they delay any of those things? And it's funny listening to you. It, in your explanation with, with those three lies. You know? Yeah. Johnny, there's another one that I'm hearing Murray talk about, yeah. especially in software today. I call it the collaborative yes, which means Murray's got a, Murray, the CFO is looking at it from the vantage point of who else is this going to impact? Yes. I heard that. Have you included have you included others? Cause mm -hmm. it's just going to wind up coming back to you as a problem anyways. Right, Murray? Correct. See, a CFO is also the chief process officer. Yeah. And so if you think of, you know, the traditional things like, you know, lead to cash or procure to pay. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of them, you know, on the go to market side and things like that. The companies that scale the best are the ones that have really good processes and you need technology to automate these processes. So, you know, if you've got it where the HR organization is just buying something with, you know, I just, it's good for HR, but it, it impacts like everybody else in the organization. It'll end up being a pretty ineffective implementation. Nobody's happy, et cetera. And fortunately the vendor will be perceived as, oh, it's bad software. Well, it actually was great software. The problem was, is that it was not implemented correctly because there really wasn't more of a, 
a design and a strategy around how we're going to improve an overall business process that we then use the technology to sort of enable. And I view my role is I don't want to miss the opportunity to improve that process and have to go redo it again later, probably with different people and all that stuff is uh, let's, let's do it right up front. And I think the salesperson that can kind of understand the use case and really, you know, um, think in terms of how is this going to be successful in the organization beyond just selling to the HR leader who might be the decision maker, the long-term value of, uh, to the company and ultimately the, the amount of business that the salesperson is going to close, is going to go way up over time. So, um, that's kind of, but I, it's a big part of my role as chief process officer. It doesn't sound exciting, but boy, when you get it right, all the employees see it. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like that would have been one of the questions that you might've asked your CIO, like, okay, this sounds great, but tell me how we're going to implement this successfully. Exactly. Is a yeah. sales organization, are they committed to this? Who on their team is going to, you know, participate, et cetera, to make sure this thing works. Uh, and we can really, you know, get the value out of it and accelerate our business. Um, those are the kind of questions that I would always ask because all you're doing is you're getting a better understanding of how successful the project's going to be downstream. And would you expect there to be success metrics in place? So rather than you put them in place, would, would you expect uh, the line of business leader to be able to tell you, here's how we're going to measure success? Yes. Um, clearly there's going to be some things in terms of, you know, what is it that we're going to, you know, the scope of the project, what we're going to accomplish from it, you know, what the schedule is uh, and how realistic that is. Um, but I've like, I've never really been really big on a lot of those metrics and I've never liked these, um, you know, various committees, you know, that you get together across the organization. I'm like, I'm not really, I'm not big on that. It's, I'm probably tend to be a little more prescriptive. Let's make decisions, you know, a little faster, but to me, it's just the line of business with a CIO, or it could be a CIO and I'm the line of business leader for what we're trying to do is, do they have a strategic orientation of what this is going to do to enable our business to be more successful and support our initiatives as an organization? And the more you get into all that, you guys, you know, all this stuff. The more you succeed in all that, price becomes less and less important, you know, because it's the value you're delivering is where all the upside is. You know, it, we had a lot of SAP and I was a big supporter of SAP. And it was like, we have to be on the most current versions at all times. We have to be the first in the world to upgrade to the next version because we're the ones that are benefiting from the new technology. If we're late, then it's just a commodity. So relative to our competitors, Etc. We want to be right on the bleeding edge on a lot of this stuff because we have capabilities others don't have. Not to mention, it inspires all the employees inside the company that they can go home at the dinner table and talk about we're the first at doing this or that, and that's inspiring to them. Yeah, but I don't know if you noticed also like built into Murray's explanation is muchness and sureness and ease of doubt. How how much is this going to cost? How much am I going to save? How easy is this to install? How easy is this to learn? How sure of you that I'm going to be successful? Which of your customers can I point to, to be, to be sure? And soon, like how soon can I get the return? How soon are we going to implement it? Right. Those are really tip, 
typical questions that uh, any executive buyer is going to ask salespeople. Absolutely. Got to be prepared. Yeah. What I'm also hearing is the success story. So success metrics have to be in place, obviously, but your, your point, Murray, what I heard you say is success story. What does success look like as it relates to our strategic plan? What does it look like as it uh, focuses on the collaboration between other organizations and the impact? So that's just as important in your mind as the price of what we're buying. Uh, I would say it's more important, far more important. I mean, the last thing is price. Everybody wants a good deal. That's just the reality. Everybody wants a good deal. We want that in our personal lives, et cetera. But ultimately, it's really not that important. All the other stuff is in place. That's the key. It's, it's a little bit like, you know, when you're acquiring companies in M&A. I mean, it's, if you get so focused on price and you try to buy it on the cheap, you're probably buying a bad company, et cetera. And the ultimate success of the company will not be the price you paid. It's, did you get that strategically correct? And you integrated it and all, all the things we all know. So you just don't want to overweight the price and have you make a, a short-sighted decision and you end up not, you know, delivering the value the company really needs to kind of get to the next level. So now, Johnny, you got to ask Murray about going out on sales calls because I want to hear how he's going to answer this when somebody <laughs> asked him for a discount. He's just a well, at certain times in, in the quarter, especially in the last like two days, I would actually, you know, tell the CEO and CFO, don't, don't take any phone calls. Like <laughs> I want to be able to negotiate this, right? I don't want them calling you and then they get an extra discount that I've already said no to. Yeah. So Murray, you've been involved with a lot of rapidly growing companies. Do you feel like there's some common elements, the common themes that run through those companies as you look back? Well, the first thing was, is that, you know, on the randomness scale of luck, they got in the right place at the right time. And I don't know how you, you can do all the analysis you want. It's just the way the world works. And mm -hmm. a lot of them just happen to be at the right place at the right time. And you can't really control that. But I, I will say this, that um, even for my own, like when I choose to join a board of a company and I've been on uh, many more than what you had mentioned earlier, I Sorry. finally developed four criteria that I use when I evaluate a company. And I, and uh, if they can have three of these four, it's going to be a home run, at least just based on my data set of the 10 companies I've worked in and call it the 10 boards I've been on. Uh, number one is, is a large TAM but like a defined TAM, like there's clarity on the TAM. It's not, you know, 1% of everybody in China kind of thing. It's like, it's a, it's like a TAM that's, that's really something that you can address Me. and it's growing fast. Uh, number two is it has a unique piece of technology, architecture, or product that's not easily replicated. Number three is, does it have a unique go-to-market model? And four, is the culture performance oriented with inspired employees with a strong set of values that help them navigate during tough times. You can get three of the four, it's a home run. So if I look at Adobe systems, had a large and defined TAM, it had unique products like Photoshop and Acrobat and the technology associated with it. 
it did not have a unique go-to-market model. It was a two-tier distribution model for the most part at the time, but it also, but it had a culture as it got, became a more performance culture. It had inspired employees that ended up becoming very strong and what actually helped the company get through the 1998 difficult time and see the market cap go up like, you know, 20 some times in a short period of time with no new products and 20% less people. So that was a home run. Dolby Labs had a small TAM, even though you saw it everywhere. It had a unique technology for sure. Ray Dolby is one of the greatest geniuses that I've ever seen in my life. It had a unique go-to-market model. There were no salespeople. They did it through working with government organizations to get their patents and their technologies. Basically, the government said, that's the standard. And you just collected money from all of the, you know, various parts of your car and around the home and phones and like that. They had to pay your royalty. And the culture was not, it, didn't, it wasn't dif differentiated. But they, so they had two of the, and it became public, but it never got very large. Oh, the market cap ever got past 10 billion. And that's because mainly because of the TAM. If you, if you look back, of the it was a TAM, you know, TAM, that was a big one. And Atlassian, where I was on the board and then I had to become the CFO a few before the IPO in kind of an emergency situation and take it out, uh, you know, on the original schedule. Uh, that one had large TAM, in my opinion, did not have differentiated product. It had unique go-to-market model. Yes. And they clicked the box on culture. Boom. It hit a hundred billion market cap, you know, a year ago or whatever. Um, it was a big winner. So I tend to look at it that way. When I look at fast growing companies, they have these things in place. Now, you know, what other things do I look at? You know, when you're inside the company, is there a willingness to experiment on the product pricing and the go to market model? and not be afraid to try different things. Cause I think you just, you know, it's that randomness thing. You got to try, you know, they couldn't figure out how to sell Acrobat at Adobe until they came up with, they experimented a few times and something finally hit. And I think you just, you're never going to get it right the first time. You, you've got to be able to experiment on that. Then, then eventually you find that repeatable sales model and price and you know how to repeat it. That's a really important thing, obviously. Then one of the things that's really hard for technology founders, they tend to be younger and because they don't have experience, they're not sort of prevented from thinking differently about things. And so they invent because they're not burdened with experience. The problem with scaling is it's all experience-based. You know, it's all been figured out like how to scale a company. And so what they fall in the trap of is they try to like engineer scaling through like their smarts yes. and they don't pay attention to experience to help scale them. And so that's one of the areas where they get into trouble and they bring in some of the, you know, people that have had, you know, maybe a couple decades of experience in that management team to kind of help on the scaling thing on the experience side can really help them continue to grow and blast through that hundred million and keep going because they've kind of, they're able to scale. Uh, those are some of the things that, uh, that I, you know, long-winded answer on that, but that I think great. answers. I can see great why answer. you guys Johnny were... and I have seen that, that one with yeah. the technology founders and thinking differently and then thinking they can engineer scale themselves and they right. run into a number of walls and it actually totally. hurts the company. Totally. They almost have to redo a restart of the company. And it's kind of their issue. I think in some ways 
it's because they think they're the smartest guy in the room and, and nobody else can tell them any different until they finally do run into a wall. And then, then they, they know, realize they need some help. So Johnny and I have seen that movie a couple of times. Oh, it, it happens all the time. And, you know, the, their strength is what's allowed them to create the company. And totally. to imagine the product. I mean, like it's, it's an incredible strength that they had. Yes. It's just that it's, it, 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 it fights against scaling. And usually, and many times, it's not their problem anymore because they get pushed out and somebody else comes yes. in to try to focus on scaling. And then you kind of lose that sort of energy around the product and what they're going to do for the customer. And so it's just a way, how can you keep the founder in their role doing what they do best and complement them with someone or others that can help them scale. And the ones that do that, you know, most of the time can be much more successful, uh, you know, in terms of building a great company. And what do you think talking about scaling? Sorry, Johnny, just following up on Larry's talking about scale. When you think about scale, what do you think of some of the two or three key parameters that you have to pay attention to when a company's scaling? Well, number one is don't grow too fast. I know it sounds kind of crazy, but, um, and I saw this from one of the more famous tech investors. I did a presentation to the board of a company I was on and showed that companies that grew 100% a year were hiring like crazy or not good investments. But the ones that sort of grew, like call it 50 to 60% or 40%, but over many, many years, they actually had it the ability to actually control their business and manage it effectively in terms of allocating resources and management's ability to prioritize and to just to be able to handle the, that level of growth. And so, you know, to me, making sure that you're just not wildly growing. And, you know, a lot of companies, you know, and John and I, I know together we've seen this is, you know, all of a sudden we want to go into a whole bunch of new countries, right? And because you, you know somebody that, you know, they're, they, they, you work with them before in Spain and you can get a couple of quick deals through their relationships, you know, and then it sort of stalls out. And then the rest of the organization is trying to set up entities and all these things. And you get completely diluted. And you should have just spent all your time focusing on the greater Chicago area where there was all the infrastructure was in place. There was actually probably more business there that you could have had. Uh, so again, it's just trying to stay a little more focused not have just absolutely out of control growth. And then, you know, obviously hiring well during this period where you're growing quickly, it's just hiring well is really important, not just trying to just fill seats. That's the big one. I think Kaplan would agree with me. Hiring well is so critical to put the right leaders in place because the new leaders that you're bringing in or growing internally, they're the people that are going to recruit the next, next wave of people, right? Yes. Yeah. So, so let's spend a little time talking about that. Um, agree a thousand percent on hiring. Well, we, there's a lot of companies right now that are pulling the lever on headcount. Like we're, we're, uh, you know, that's sales and marketing as you submerge. It's one of the first places you go. Uh, and many of them were growing too fast or growing outside of scalable metrics or parameters or what have you. And now we got economic headwinds. If the economy, um, when the economy, uh, it's hard to say, you pick up where you don't know who's saying what about the economy, but let's say the headwinds improve. Um, what advice 
do you give to people? Because the worst thing that can happen in the sales culture is yo-yo um, sales headcount. Do you have advice going forward? I, you know, it's, you know, every recession is different and every industry is sort of different. And, you know, are they early or late in the cycle and those kind of things? Um, what you don't want to do is get, obviously get ahead of yourself. And then the company's the economy is improving, but you've overhired. Now you're actually having to kind of go backwards when things are improving. And so, you know, my sense is, as you look at that variable spend, let's say in marketing, and you, you start to do some extra work there. And I think marketing has changed so much in the last years. It's so much more data-driven now. And so you can see more about your effectiveness of your marketing spend. And so you kind of do that. You pick some isolated places to add salespeople, but you probably chase growth with sales. Like kind of you're behind a little bit. And then you kind of add as you get, you build your confidence on that. And that's kind of... That's kind of how I would think of it. But, you know, these are the kind of things where like the spreadsheet doesn't really work. And sometimes kind of your past experience doesn't work. You know, you got to kind of have a good conversation with what's going on in the field with those leaders. Maybe get out in the field a little bit and just try to see if together you can come up with something that, that kind of has some balance and makes sense. There'll be plenty of times to throw, you know, more resources at it, but just try not to get too ahead of yourself in the beginning. Great advice. You know, Murray, um, right now, when we talk to different sales leaders that say that, you know, because the economy is tightening, the CFOs are getting involved in scrutinizing at least almost all the major purchases, right? So, you know, putting your CFO hat on, if you were one of them, what, what are the typical questions that you're asking people that are bringing you you know, purchases that they want to do, you know, in this time frame. But again, it goes back to this planning, control, and strategy and what those priorities are. So if anybody internally say, hey, I want to go this, well, how does that fit in to what we're trying to accomplish? And I think it's a great, you know, it's a great program you want to start. I get all that, but it's not aligned with our priorities right now. So I, to me, I would keep pointing it back to that. But if it is one of our priorities, then I would be trying to be more of an advocate because we think it's important and how do we move along faster on this process? So to me, it's just back to the priorities, et cetera. Now you'll get some where there was the backdoor deal with the CEO. It's like, what is going on here? Then I go to the CEO and say, you know, we just agreed in a meeting a week ago, this is what we're going to do. And now I've got someone coming here telling me that you said that, you know, we're going to go do this. So did I miss a meeting? Are we changing our priorities? What is it that you want me to take off the list now to add this one to the list? Right. And why don't we talk about this as an executive team since we can all be on board with this? Right. You know, and so that's the part of the CFO role that I hate doing, but you know, someone's got to do it. But the message, the you know, message for salespeople that are listening who always think in this time frame, well, these companies are not spending any money, or they're talking to somebody lower in their organization and says, Oh, the budgets are being cut because they are kind of being cut. What they have to hear is if it's a critical initiative for the company and it's something that they want to do for the long term, they're still going to make that purchase. Yes. You have to do a much better job of finding out, you know, the critical projects, the strategic initiatives and aligning your purchase to those things because it's the only way you're going to get it through. But people are exactly. not going to like, you know, chop up the lobby furniture for firewood. They're not yeah. doing it. They're still spending yeah. money. Getting above the noise, Johnny Matt. <laughs> 
Got to be above the noise. Yeah. Hey, Johnny, we, I, we have to get to valuations and things like down rounds. Can you take us there quick? Yeah. You trying to cut off this conversation? Just no, no. I just want to make sure we use Murray's expertise on this because okay. it's a big topic. Okay. So Murray, like in the last two years, you're very familiar with the fact that, you know, a lot of these companies that were growing pretty fast took, you know, major rounds. They took, because of that, they got very large valuations. Maybe this year they're going to need another funding round. Chances are they may have to take a down round. You know, how, how should some of these companies, you know, approach the market? And maybe this is just too, too, you know, a really big, wide question. And then also maybe where I'm going the most is how do they, if they have to take a down round, like how do they ha best handle that with the employees? Can you start with a, just an, for our audience, can you start with just an explanation of what is a down round? Yeah. Up round, down round funding. Yeah. Cause a lot of them may not understand that. Yeah. So a couple things here. One is, is that most of my CFO experience was we had too much cash and how do we, what do we do with it? And I've done actually less on the funding side. Now I've done some, but, uh, and obviously at the board level, but you know, the thing is, is, you know, we've had this thing where everything was up and to the right and the valuations went way up. And now you've kind of burned through the cash. Now you need some more and no investor is going to pay you the price of the last round that was financed. So you're going to have to lower your stock price. Now, we all know that stock prices have come down for the public companies. Private companies are no different, right? But over the last 10 years, if you're, you know, you're an employee, now you're in your 10th year of your career, you might not have seen this, right. but private companies, their prices go up and down too. And so, you know, you're going to get to a point where you're going to have to take a down round. You're going to, the price is going to have to go down in order to encourage someone to put money in. And this is where your board, your venture investors, you're going to find out, are they really partners? Or were they just investors? And you really got to work with your board and your your venture investors, and because they're this is what they do for a living, and they have to provide some guidance here to help navigate through this in terms of how to approach it. Uh, and you know, some have looked at debt and things like that, but really, this is where your board has to play a really important role here and demonstrate value to help you through this. But you're most likely going to have to take a round that's down because if you really believe in your mission, you know, you have a strategy you believe in and you're just facing some headwinds in the economy, which all public companies and private companies go through, you're going to have to just go ahead and take that down round, get the cash so that you have it to continue on with your, your mission on that. The employees, look, nobody wants to hear their stock price went down. Now, if you're a company that you hype the IPO and everybody was going to get rich all through this, then you are going to have a lot of trouble on your hands. The great companies that went public that I was a part of, they didn't hype the IPO internally. It was just a result. It wasn't the goal. They innovated and made customers happy and created value. Then the IPO and the stock price and people make money is the result, but it wasn't the goal. So if you've kind of handled it well up to this point, it'll be a little easier, but you absolutely have to be honest, genuine, authentic. The employee just wants to know where they stand, where the company stands, what we're going to do about it. And if you try to hide, hide the ball kind of thing and gloss over it or fog them, then you've done real damage there because, you know, they know that other companies around are also facing challenges. So this is a time that leadership really matters. 
a great time to demonstrate it. And I think the, the employees for the most part are going to understand this. Now you may have to go to those top 10% of employees and give them some additional stock. And you got to look at that. Uh, but, uh, cause a lot of other employees will look at the best employees. Hey, if they're staying, I'll stay. Uh, so I think you just, you know, this is all again, kind of on a continuum of what you do, but uh, this is kind of where, and, and the public companies too. I remember in 02, we had, you know, the economy went way down. Adobe stock really went down and there was some grants made to certain employees to, to keep us engaged, uh, et cetera. So, um, that's just part of, you know, handling it. Yeah. Good explanation. Johnny, do you have a stomach on? on? Do you have a stomach on um, IPOs? Um, you know, crappy at the beginning of the year. Um, talk of second half of the year. I'm not asking that predictor be held accountable, but do you have a, what's your stomach telling you? Well, like you, it changes every day based on what you read. Um, I was sort of in the camp at the second half of this, of this year, uh, you know, if inflation subsides and the Fed slows down or stops raising rates, um, cause the supply chains all got straightened out and pricing yeah. came down that the market's going to move up because the economy is still kind of growing and unemployment really hasn't been impacted. Corporate profits are in pretty good shape. So you could talk yourself into the second and a half year, the market's looking good and investors looking for growth companies to invest in and, and IPOs can come into that market. Uh, and the investors that are, that have the best companies who don't really need money, um, they're willing to, to stick their neck out and have it go public because they feel they're not going to take too much dilution or getting pushed down on the stock price in order to get out. I still kind of have a sense that maybe that's going to happen, but you know, it's, who really knows, but, uh, I guess I'm still in the optimist camp on that, but you know, from day to day, you can be convinced otherwise. Same. Johnny, you want to go any further on that with Murray? No, I, unless he's got more hope and optimism, I feel like he was tailing off at the end there. <laughs> no, we just need some of the very top companies to go out and have them be yep. well received by investors be tough on the price and not cave in just to get it out. And you'll do that if you've got cash in the balance sheet and you're generating cash, mm -hmm. you don't need to go out right now. So you'll create right. demand yeah. and that will get others to say, Hey, you know, they'll be open-minded and the, the, you know, the door proverbial door will open and more will follow. The best ones will go early, obviously. Yep. Yeah. If you want to do any type of rap. Oh boy. There's so much Johnny. Um, Give us, or give us three or four things you took away from Larry. Yeah. The yeah, business performance, the business acumen, uh, sellers and sales leaders that embrace the business side of a company and understand the strategy are really the profile that is going to get the most favorable results and the most favorable treatment from financial partners. Um, I, I love how you wound up in the three whys camp. So I had the three whys plus the collective yes, um, which I thought was really awesome. And he um, had the implementation. Yes. You yes. can ask a lot of questions around implementation. In your uh, three out of four of why you would join a board, the large TAM, unique piece of technology, 
unique go-to-market culture of performance um, uh, with inspired uh, employees and having three out of four. I wrote those down. I, I thought those were brilliant. And those, those I believe, um, stand the test of time. Yeah. So Murray, you're awesome, Murray. You're awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm happy to uh, happy to join you guys today. Yeah. Well, well, thanks, Murray, and thanks to everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Code. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. dot